Thanks for tuning into the ES First podcast. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So take a minute to hop on over and give us a like or a follow. And of course, if you're ever in Excelsior Springs, stop on by. We can't wait to welcome you home. Well, here at ES First, we preach through books of the Bible. Books of the Bible, uh, we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. The inspired word is, it means that, that uh, the Holy Spirit breathed on it, and these words are not just regular words, they're life-giving words. And so we study the Bible, we're Jesus followers, we believe that Jesus comes alive through his written word, but also through his spoken word to us by the Holy Spirit. So I might be kind of deep and, and kind of weird for some people, but we believe that. And so as we read, we believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in deeper ways. And if you've been here for very long, you've experienced that. I'm sure that God has been bringing things to life for you. So we're going through the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a book about, uh, it's a letter actually to the church at Rome from this guy named Paul. Paul was a, uh, he was a Pharisee. He was a very religious Pharisee, and he was the name, went by the name of Saul. And during those days of, of Saul, he was so uh, zealous about his religion, the Pharisaical uh, Jewish, uh, being a Pharisaical Jew, that he would run around killing Christians because they, they seemingly stood against the Pharisees. And he believed he was doing right by going around uh, attacking, persecuting, throwing in jail, killing whatever uh, Christians. Uh, and in this part of his journey, he actually has an encounter with Jesus. He's knocked off his horse and, and struck blind and, and is crazy. He has this experience with, with, with Jesus as he's on his way to go persecute and kill more Christians. And during this time, he, he receives a word from God that he's supposed to go see this guy named Ananias. And Ananias is a devout Christian. And God comes to Ananias and says, says I'm going to send Paul, I'm going to send Saul to your house. Now, if you can imagine, it'd be like being a Christian in, you know, Afghanistan. And God says to you, hey, I've been talking to Osama bin Laden, and I'm going to send him to your house, and I want you to disciple him and teach him about Jesus. Now, most Christians would be like, wait, 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 we out here dying in these streets, and you're going to send Osama bin Laden to my house, right? This is what's, what's going on. And so, uh, Ananias is a little bit weirded out by it, but he says, okay. And uh, actually, God says, I, I know that you're worried, but behold, he prayeth now. That's the King James Version because it sounds so much cooler. Uh, Saul is actually praying now that his life would be transformed simply by him having a conversation with God. That his, his life is new because he begins an open dialogue with the creator of all things. And so he goes to Ananias' house and he begins to be discipled there and learn about Jesus. He knows about the faith. He knows more about uh, the Christian faith uh, when it comes to the Jewish side than any person probably in this room and anybody that you know. He knew it all, but he didn't know about Jesus. And so Ananias began to teach him about Jesus. And then he's like, you know, we should, uh, Paul, Paul begins like, he uh, goes by Saul still. He, he begins to like want to teach and, and feels this calling to do and, and go to the nations. And he, he interacts with the original 12 disciples. And they're all like, are you kidding me? We're not letting Saul into our group. He's the one who is killing us. And actually, this guy named Barnabas sticks up for Saul and says, I think he's legit. He's the real deal. And for three years, uh, Saul begins to become disciple and part of the uh, apostles. And he is considered the extra apostle. Right? So we have the 12 that were with Jesus, minus Judas. And they added, added one who was Stephen. And uh, so they had their 12 and then plus Saul. And the book of Acts records that, that Saul went around and, and he became this, this guy named Paul. He changed his name. And he has these missionary journeys where he goes and he plants churches all over the Mediterranean area. And so during this time of planting churches, he is writing letters to all the churches. He would go and start a church. And as he was traveling, he would write back to the church and said, I hear you're doing great. I hear things are going good. I hear you guys got smoke and lights now. I believe you're super holy. I believe, you know, like I, I hear your pastor wears Jordans and it's really cool. Uh, your church is growing. I believe that you guys are doing great things. So he's writing letters back to these churches. And, uh, and this church at Rome is one of the churches that he always wants to go to but he never quite gets there until the very end of his life. He's like, I want to go to Rome. I want to come see you. I want to, he's like, but I hear of your faithfulness. I hear of how great you're doing. Now, Rome is like the sin city of all of the Mediterranean. It's the most developed. Actually, Rome just starts going out and conquering everybody. And that whole entire area becomes the Roman Empire within a few, few hundred years after these letters. 
And so he's writing back to Rome and he's talking about the church there. And it is actually the most persecuted church. Okay, so you can imagine like people feel like they're persecuted here in America. We got the right and we got the left and we got the liberals and we got the conservatives and everybody. We got Christians on both sides of the fence and people are going back and forth about everything. And then we go, oh, Christians are so persecuted in America. You're not persecuted like the Roman church. You're not that bad, okay? So they're Christians in the heat of all this battle. They're being thrown in prison, all this stuff. They are giving their lives for the gospel. They're giving their lives for the fact that Jesus is alive and well in their hearts and in their minds and doing great and mighty things. They cannot deny Jesus because he's transforming them inside and out. And Paul writes to them and he says, hey, uh, I I know you're doing great things. You're doing so awesome. He's like, but I want to come to you and I want to preach the gospel. Now, most of the time in in our lives, we think we know the gospel. Gospel is, you know, the good news, the Bible says. It's the good news about Jesus. It's that Jesus came and he lived life as man and he died and and uh, on the cross and he resurrected from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he come to transform the lives of everybody around him that's the gospel and you would think yeah i i got that like i got that when i was six i i accepted jesus to come into my life i got that when i started coming to church like i want to know about the rapture i want to know about the end of everything i want to know about the apocalypse i want to know about how to overcome my fear my anxiety i need to know about how to raise my kids i don't need to know the gospel i need to know about some practical living about how i can transform my life and paul is talking about all of these things but he writes to the romans in the thick of the battle, who are living their faith out every single day, and says, I want to preach to you the gospel. It's that important. It's that powerful. It's that supernatural that Paul wants us to get it again and again and again about how Jesus Christ is alive and well. Why? Because it's so easy for us to get sidetracked into other things and forget that we are on this path with Jesus. He has made us new. We have supernatural power and the things that he's doing continually inside of us is so amazing that it should never be forgotten. It should be the forefront. And so that's what he's talking about when he writes to the Romans. He says, I want to come to you and tell you about Jesus. So we're on that journey. We talked a little bit about, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. Sozo, supernatural, supernaturally, completely delivered in just the right way. It is the sozo, the salvation of God. So that salvation is being lived out. And he writes in these first like three chapters, he's trying to express to these people about what it means to be a sinner. Now, most of us are probably really aware of what it means to be a sinner. Amen? Right? Like you know what it was like. Usually when it comes to your testimony, most of your testimony is just you talking about how bad of a person you were. So we, we know what it was like to be a sinner. We know, we know uh, how, what, what the lingo, we know how to talk. As a matter of fact, like we can be, like I took people on a mission trip and uh, we were in a van and I was like, we were listening to worship music the whole way, but we're in Los Angeles. So like, I'm like, hey, uh, I'm going to play some music. Uh, I'll play, play you uh, this little hidden playlist that I got. And so I, I turned on some gangster rap, Okay. Some, see, you're like, yeah. Okay, now there's something that happens when you play Dr. Dre. Like, I immediately go back to a certain time and place. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I was in a, like a Ford Transit van. I laid that seat back. I turned my hat backwards. I rolled down my window. I even like tapped the brakes a little bit to get it to kind of, you know, hydraulic jump. And we thought we were bad in this Ford Transit. Turns out we were just missionary kids just out just telling people about Jesus. But isn't it funny how, like, certain things bring up your past? You know, like, you see something or, or, or you experience something or you remember something. And, and then, then, like, you're always kind of with one person in your pack that's like, hey, look at that. <laughs> and you're like, mm-hmm. Like, you know what it was like to live in sin. You know what your old life was like. And you know how you should be living. And so this is the push-pull of our lives. What happens is, is we're constantly concerned about, you know, I know how bad I am, but I'm trying to be good you know what I mean like that's my old life but I'm working on this thing right uh I I I was I was a terrible person and and I I wish you could even know how bad of a person I was and then we go here but I'm I'm doing better now 
right? And so that's where we're always living between this sin life and this new life, and we're back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We know how much of a sinner we were, and we know how far we have to go. We're like, I wish I was like Jesus, but I'm just not. You know, like, you know, like I'm saved, but I can still throw hands. You know, don't, don't talk to me the wrong way. I will hit you in the throat, all right? So, like, this is, this is where we live, and, and it's this constant tension. So, eventually, we give up because oftentimes we know what we're like on the inside. We know what we're like deep down, and we're like, I'm just a terrible person. I'm trying. I, I don't know how much longer I can hold. Like, we're holding on to a tightrope hanging over the Grand Canyon, knowing that's really where we are and where we belong is down there at the bottom of the canyon. But for some reason, we're on this rope, and if we can just hold on, then it will be just enough, and we'll be good. And we're up here on this rope with other people. We're like, hey, how are you doing? You holding on? Yeah. Remember how bad we used to be? Yeah. Remember how good we have it now? And it doesn't feel all that good at all. It feels like pain and suffering and work. And this is what Paul is trying to address in the first three chapters. He's addressing your old life and he's going to address your new life, and then he's going to walk into what it means to have a new life. It's not holding on to a rope across the Grand Canyon, hoping you don't fall down. That would be the equivalent of God saving Noah, saying, hey, I want you to build an ark, okay? And he says, it's going to rain, and it's going to flood. He's like, eventually, you're going to get on this boat, and I'm going to save you with this boat. And they all get on the boat, and Noah's like, okay, God told me that if we're going to live here in this ark of safety, you're going to have to hold on to the edge on the outside of the boat. No, that's not the way God saves. He doesn't make you new and then say, hold on to the outside, and if you can hold on, you'll make it. He actually encompasses you with his safety and his goodness, that's how he operates. But because we're so sin conscious, we're so conscious of who we are continually and how bad we are, we're just trying to be, you know, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And what God wants to do is take you from bad all the way to good. Okay, but in order to take you from bad all the way to good, you've got to understand how incredibly bad you are. And that's the curse. That's the curse. Is a lot of times we don't understand how incredibly bad we are. So Paul is going to spend the first three chapters telling you how incredibly bad you are. Are you ready? All right. Turn your Bibles to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 3. Here we go. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. This is my favorite verses in the Bible. I actually have that highlighted in pink, so you know it's powerful because I highlighted it in pink. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But... If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? This is what happens when people sin and they go, well, it wasn't that bad. I can keep sinning because God didn't pour out his wrath on me. Right? It's like when you were growing up and you were, you know, you lied to your parents and you got away with it. And then you became a liar for all the rest of your days. Right? So like I have kids like Judah believes that I knew everything up until the time he's about five, okay? So he would ask me crazy things. He'd be like, we would watch a movie for the first time, and he would be like, hey, Dad, why is that happening? He's like, I don't know, son. He's like, come on, you know everything. And he believed that uh, until I was like, I had to break it to him, like, I've never seen this movie before, so I can't possibly know. And then he started to decide that maybe Dad doesn't know everything. He's very smart, and he's very wise, but he doesn't know everything. Everything, And then you could slowly see Judah going down this slippery slope of dad doesn't know everything. Right? And so what happens to us is that we get away with something in sin or we're, we're existing in a place of sin. And we go, well, that wasn't so bad. Maybe this isn't a bad thing. Right? And so he says... If our unrighteousness brings out the righteousness of God more clearly, it's his forgiveness and it's his grace. What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath to us? 
I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderous claim, that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. In other words, like, if God's grace shows up when you're the worst, wouldn't it make sense that you should just be the worst all the time? So that you could get more grace. Imagine God's grace as like ice cream, right? And every time you were the worst person on the planet, you just got as much ice cream as you want. For me, it's cookies and cream, right? It's like, mmm, it's good stuff, right? And then it's gone. It's like, well, how do I get more ice cream? I do bad stuff. And I get more ice cream. That's kind of the way some people treat the grace of God. They treat it like, well, uh, I just need more grace. And so they're constantly living in a place of worse. Constantly living in a place of, I'm so sorry, God. And then they come to the altar and they feel this overwhelming emotional response about God pouring out his grace on them. And so they continually live out this cycle again and again. So Paul says, some would argue that that's the way we have to do it. Right? It would be like we need a confession booth out there and... Everybody come in, and then it feels so good to have your soul cleansed. I can do all these bad things, but I can come and confess, and that feels so good. And he says, no, we shouldn't live that way. That's not the way the grace of God works. He says, "Um, let us do evil that good may result. He says, their condemnation is just. He's like, they got it coming to them if they do that. And this is what I want to talk about today. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? As Christians, as believers, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Look at your neighbor and say, not you. Okay, good. Don't fight about it. Just, just, just take it. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Don't pull any punches, Paul, jeez. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Now, you may not think that you shed innocent blood, but how many people do you point at and blame all day long? That if you could, you would kill them. If God used your finger pointing and you're just straight up just blasting them with every argument under the sun, if that was actually death, would you be killing people all day long? Their feet shed innocent blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word of God. I believe that it's powerful and effective. I believe that it's new for each day of our lives. Even when we think we know and we think we understand, God, you are waiting to show us something deeper. I pray that today would be that day. We'll come to a greater realization of how much you love us, how much you desire to transform our lives, and how much you desire to be intimately involved with everything that's going on in our lives. We're sorry for pushing you away and saying you don't care. We know that you care. Show us the greatness of your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. I like expensive things. Um, So if you hang out with me very long, I begin to talk about expensive things. Uh, I like sneakers that cost a lot of money. So for those that don't know, one of the most expensive sneakers on the planet is this special design that came out when I was a youngster. Um, It was actually a shoe that was on a movie called Back to the Future 2. Remember this? Okay, so... Marty McFly gets these awesome Nikes. They come up like mid-calf, and uh, he puts them on, and they automatically lace up, just like, right? 
So Nike had the brilliant idea, like 20-some years later, they're like, we're going to make these shoes, and everybody's going to go bananas. So these shoes are about $17,000. $17,000. I actually saw somebody that, that destroyed theirs with mud and dirt so that they could wash them down and show you, show you how good their shoe cleaner worked. Okay, That must be some expensive shoe cleaner. All right, $17,000 for a pair of Nikes. And it's like, it's like you can't even, you can't buy them like, you know, in the back alley. You know, you can't buy them like in a Chinese market. You can't, buy, you, got, you got to get them legit from somebody who has them. And when they came out, they've just progressively grown more and more valuable. Okay, now I love things that, that cost a lot of money, but I don't like to pay full price for them. Anybody with me? So, like, I love stores where you can go and you can get something like, like, for instance, these pants that I'm wearing are $200 pants. You didn't even know that, did you? Like, you like, they just look like regular pants. Like, Elle and Brandon wear the same pants, except for Elle's have a bunch of cuts in them, right? But I didn't spend $200 on them. And I t- every morning I put them on, I'm like, man, these pants are worth $200. So I'm scouring the internet to find these pants in different colors that I can put them on and feel the same greatness every single day, but I don't want to put, pay the same price for them. You know what I mean? Anybody like that? You find something nice that you like, and you're like, man, this is so great. But chances are, if you got it on sale, you're not going to find it again. You know what I mean? It's like it was that one-time deal, and you were there, and they had every color, and you could afford every color, but for some reason, you didn't buy every color. So now I just buy every color I can. That's what I do. And I put them on the shelf, and then I just walk in there, and I'm like, what am I going to wear today? It's like, wow, I have brand new pants right here. And I can pull them off, pull the tag off, and I have them because I bought them on sale. Right? The price goes down. And, and it goes down based on who wants it. So like you could buy Versace something. You could go to a, a Ross, maybe in uh, New York City or, or Los Angeles where they have higher end items. And you could buy a Versace scarf for a lot cheaper because nobody bought it. You know what I mean? Like it becomes on sale because Nobody purchased it at the top price, and so it got lower and lower and lower and lower until somebody goes, I'll take that one, right? It's called sale for a reason. They need to get rid of it, and you walk in, and you go, I'm finally able to buy it. This is supply and demand, right? It's also you saying, I am willing to pay that particular price. It may be more expensive than the scarf you bought last week, the knockoff at the Chinese market. It may be more expensive, uh, you know, more expensive than the one that you bought off the internet, the pair of shoes that were knockoffs. I'm not looking at anybody in this room, but um, you might buy knockoff sneakers. You might buy those Marty McFly back to the future shoes for, you know, some, some, uh, instead of Nikes, they said like spikies or something like that. And the, you know, like look weird. And you're like, these don't look the same but you bought them cheaper because somebody knocked them off, right? Because the value is placed on what somebody will pay for it. So like this time of year, what's going to happen is like Ford and Chevy and uh, all these cars are going to start marking down the cars they didn't sell. As a matter of fact, some of these car dealerships are going to throw lots and lots of money. we got $10,000 in rebate, $10,000 rebate on a car. You can give me $10,000 off this car. Why were you charging me so much before? Right? Why is it so expensive one time, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what, I'm just going to give you more. I'm going to give you a better price. I'm going to give you more money back. Why does it happen? Because somebody didn't value it enough to purchase it at that price. And so it goes down and down. You're like, wow, I got a really great deal on this car. I got the rebates. I got the low payments. They took my trade in. And I only got into this car for $75,000. You're like, $75,000? I told you, I like expensive stuff. Value, worth, is what comes out of you placing value on it. For instance... In certain places at certain times, you can charge more because you have a capital, you have a capitalization on specific items. So, for instance, like I talked about the Chiefs, Dippin' Dots. Now, you can buy Dippin' Dots, you know, at the mall for $2.50. When you go to the Chiefs game, you know how much Dippin' Dots are? Like $25, okay? $25, why? Because they know you can't get Dippin' Dots anywhere else. And if you are hooked on Dippin' Dots, like Wanda Lee, You'll be like, I'll pay $25 for the experience of Dippin' Dots at Arrowhead Stadium. 
It's a bottle of water that is actually about 18 cents, but you paid $9 for it. Why? Because you place value on being hydrated in that particular time in space. It's the value that's created. Now, as much as like things like Chevy goes on sale at the end of the year, or water goes up to the Chiefs game and comes back down, certain things do not go on sale. Did you know this? Certain things never go on sale. They don't like come to the end of the year, like you have like these, uh, like the Mona Lisa. You're like, you know what? We're just going to mark it down. Doesn't go on sale. Actually increases in value. You notice you never see a commercial when you're sitting there, like even if you're watching the Masters. Masters have all like the, the, the Masters golf tournament. It has different commercials than like, you know, the Chiefs game, right? It's like everything's like stock trading, Right? And they'll show you, like, Lisa Mercedes-Benz, right? And she gives them Mercedes-Benz. You never, ever, 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 ever see a commercial for a Bentley. Bentley is a very expensive car. They they don't go, you know what, we're going to, we have a a lot of extra Bentleys laying around. We're going to give you a great rebate. We're going to give you $100,000 off. They don't do that. Bugattis, they don't have commercials. They don't go on sale. Rolls-Royce, a car that's custom-made for you from beginning to end, about a six-month process, does not go on sale. It never goes on sale. The only way that you can get it cheaper is if you buy it used. Used. The price doesn't come down because, you know what, we couldn't sell it. You know, nobody had that value. It's that somebody used it, and when you use it, what happens is it goes down in value. Down, 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 down. Every year it goes worse and worse. And I love that about tax time, right? Like I got all this stuff. I had all this value and it goes down. So you can't tax me on this, right? I love it when my cards get down below $1,000. Like, yep, you know, this piece of crap, you can't tax me on this anymore. I love that. Because when something is used, it's in a different state than new, the value can't be the same. It has to go down. Paul is trying to get us to this place where we recognize that our lives are no longer in the new status that they were once when God created us. As a matter of fact, when God created Adam and Eve, I mean, you can imagine the newness Right? They were so new, they didn't have to have clothes. They're just like, yeah, you know, like you get to a certain age, you're like, ah, I, don't, I don't really want to be, you know, just out here in front of everybody, you know, like that. Adam and Eve were new. The question is, did they have belly buttons? We don't know. <laughs> Try to stick with me here, though, because you're going to think about that. All like, Do they have belly buttons? Imagine, well, we, we, me, me and Chuck sometimes have conversations about what they ate and how they had, did they have digestive systems? Ooh, did they have to eat? Because when you have to eat, it's because your body is dying, and they were never dying. Ooh, interesting. So we have these deep thoughts because Adam and Eve were so incredibly new. What happens is they sinned, and they were separated from the perfection that they were in God, and so then they had all of these things. They started to get older. Adam started to get gray hair. Um, Eve has, has childbearing pains. All of these things happen because they're no longer perfectly new. They become used. They become used to a place that their lives are tainted from perfection, and so something has to be done. And so God, from the beginning of time, has always had this plan for salvation, which comes through Jesus, but humanity has to go through this process of year after year becoming older and older and less new and less new and broken. So you can imagine Adam and Eve coming out of the garden. There's still not a whole lot of disease. As a matter of fact, Methuselah lives like 900 years. He's one of the, one of the, the kids, the great-grandkids of Adam and Eve. 900 years. And humanity starts going down and down and down. It says, it says the Bible uh, that Abraham is 75 years old, and he's old, and he's beyond childbearing years, but he lives for a lot of years longer. I forget the exact age, but I know that, that Noah said that God, God said that Noah would live to 120. 120 is crazy to even think about. And we have all this modern science and health and all these things, and we're living to 75, 80. 
All these diseases. We have kids that, you know, we're worried about them coming to, to school, not having their shots. I don't think Adam and Eve have to, had to worry about that because humanity just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and more and more used and more and more used and more and more used because that's the nature of brokenness. It's like making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and then you have a terrible picture. You can't even read the print anymore because it's just the worst version of what originally was. And so even though we have reflections of Adam and Eve, even though they have reflections of God, we are a used version coming down the line, and we're no longer worth what God had originally placed. This is what he's saying. Humanity is on the run. They're on the lookout for this thing called worth. They, they, they want to create value everywhere they go. Like you listen to me, what kind of value are you creating? And I, I think it's important. Like, what, what, are you, what are you investing into the places you go into? But everybody's like, you know, love me and, and I need to love myself and, and I need to take time for me, which I'm all for self-care. Um, but, but oftentimes we are on a search to try to make ourselves better and more new and not so used so that we can feel better about the place we are. This happens even in church. I come to church and you know what? I'm growing. I'm becoming a better person. I don't do all the things that I used to do. I don't say all the things that I used to say unless, you know, certain situations come up and then I just have to say something. Today I didn't act so saved. You know, that person got in my face and I just had to let them have it. I just couldn't take it anymore. It's us trying to get to this place of value and what Paul is saying is like even the Jews. Now, Jews, they were God's chosen people. Think about this. In, in our time, we don't, we don't quite get this. We can't understand it fully. But when we go to the idea of the Jews, like God chose a certain race of people and was with them. And his blessing was on them again and again and again. And they had the perfect law of God. And they're like, you can do all the perfect laws and you can, you can actually be perfect. In chapter 2, he says, those that are doers of the law can actually be justified by the law. It's crazy to think that you could maybe abide by the law so perfectly that you get to heaven and God goes, yep, you did all the law. Like if anybody could brag and, and get all excited about how good they were, it would be the Jews. And so he starts off and he goes, hey, look, even if you have the law and you keep it and, and you do everything just right, you are still used and down here and worthless and degrading and degrading and degrading. Well, this doesn't sound very encouraging, Brandon. I, I never heard you talk about worthless before. Stick with me. He says, no matter what you do, it's like, and as a matter of fact, when you are faithless, God is still faithful. That's the kind of God that we serve. When your faithfulness fails over and over and over again, when, you, when you're like, God, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it. Just help me out. Take this headache away. Whatever it is that you got. And you fail at that, God's still faithful. So then he comes down and he says, well, let me just tell you. There's actually, you know, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. In order to make that point really clear, he's like, there's no one righteous. And you're like, okay. He's like, no, not one. He's not trying to make like a song, you know, like, no, not one. Like, he didn't want to make it rhyme, whatever. He, just wanted, he wanted to just seal the deal for you and be like, hey, whoever you're thinking about, no, not even them. I know you're kind of getting a big head over there, Ira. No, not even you. Right? Well, what, what, I mean, I, I've been in church all my life. No, not even you. I mean, I didn't. Nope, not even you. Not even you. No, not one. What about Enoch? He was like sucked up into heaven. What about Elijah? I mean, God came down in a chariot of fire. Dun, 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 dun. Swirling up into heaven. What about him? No, not them. Not even one. Not one person. So why was Enoch accepted in heaven? Because of God's faithfulness. Why was Elijah took up in a fiery chariot? Because of God's faithfulness. That's what he's saying. This is not even one person is righteous. 
but I, I thought I had worth. I thought, you know, like, I was valuable. I used to have this, you know, magnet on my, my bed at home. It was the cutest little dog. And my mom always told me, she'd say, I know that I'm somebody because God doesn't make junk. I'm, I have worth. I'm worth something. God's like, no, actually, down, 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 down. That's you. Adam and Eve, brand new, used, 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 used. So what are you worth? Well, before God, you have nothing to even hold in your hand. Be like, I'm worth this much. He's like, nice try. I made you. Everything around you, I could just, I could just start all over. I could destroy this earth and do it all again. So that means, just like that Versace scarf that you bought at the store that nobody else wanted, and you can buy it at a discounted price, that means God could buy you for literally pennies. Right? God could buy you for literally pennies. You're worthless. I have a friend who is a rapper, and he had this song. It's called Worthless Purchase. He was worthless, and God purchased. It would be like the ultimate like investor move, right? Just invest in a bunch of things that cost absolutely nothing, and then you make them worth something, and then you can cash it all in, and then you're just like a gazillionaire. That would be God. I mean, like he could do that. He could just invest in everybody for little to nothing, and then he could, he could draw them all in because they're absolutely worthless, clean them up, shine them up, and go, ta-da! Wouldn't that be great? But that's not what God did. That's not God's approach. That's not the way he approaches your life. Even though right here it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. What he says at the bottom of this passage, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There are people that want to tell you that they're not accountable to God. And so what they do is they create their own worth. They may create it through money. They may create it through fame. They may create it through just their inner being or whatever they're trying to do. They may, you know, just sit around in a trance with yoga music and like, yeah, so good. And you're so worth it. And we're just loving everybody. And like, whatever that is, it's like we're all accountable before God, not each other. I got friends that, that um, are atheists and, and they just want to be good among each other. But what happens when you stand before God? Which they don't think doesn't exist, so it's kind of in their favor when they think this way. What happens when you stand before God? He says, how good were you to everybody? Awesome. Well, not good enough. And it's not because God is trying to show up just to degrade everybody and show how great he is. He's actually showing the level that he lives at. So this law, beginning with the Ten Commandments, you know, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Let's start with that one. How good are we at that? Not great. Right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't lie. Don't kill anybody. Why am I killed anybody? So I'm so good. I'm good there. Well, maybe. Just go. Don't bear false witness. Right? Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. My God. I love his boat. Just down the line, 10 things. And then the law gets deeper than that. So the law gets super deep. It's like, hey, don't eat shellfish. Well, that sucks. Going to hell. Had too many shrimp this week. Right? It's, in one place it says, don't cut the, men shouldn't cut the hair on their temples. Okay? That, that's why the Jewish guys have these curly, you know, things hanging down, like, I was like 13, you know, shaving my sideburns, which I shouldn't have because I actually, I was shaving them because, because Brandon Walsh had these sweet sideburns and I wanted to have sideburns. Like, and somebody told me if you shave them, then your hair will grow, right? So I was trying to shave as much as possible so I could get sideburns down the side of my face. 
the law says don't cut that hair or you're going to hell. You're a sinner. It says that women, when you're on your menstrual cycle, you need to camp outside. That's what it says. It says actually outside of town, not just outside the house. It literally says that. It says, here's, the, here's where everybody camps. He's like, women, when you are bleeding, you need to go all the way out there. This is all the things that are written in the law. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Now, Adam and Eve may not have been meat eaters, but I am definitely a meat eater. And I don't like meat that does not have blood in it. If you overcook some some steak, I'm like, just get this out of my face. Bring me the bloody meat. Right? I want it to be juicy and running everywhere. By those standards, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Like when you bring home hamburger from the market and you put it in the skillet for your tacos and there's that like blood in the package. You know what I'm talking about? Sinner. You're going to hell. This is what's happening. All of these things are lined up. If you didn't go to Israel or Jerusalem and you didn't sacrifice on the right day, in the right way, at least so many times a year, you were going to hell. You and your family. If you didn't pay tithes, you were going to hell. And there was tithes and there was offerings. And all in all, it was about 45% of your income. We say 10%, that's the tithe, but it's even more than that. You're going to hell. This is what the law was. Before the law, God didn't operate this way. He operated just on belief. He's like, if you believe me, then I'll count it to you as righteousness. But here's what happens. Humanity wants to be worth it so bad that they will look for a qualification to meet. This is what we do. We look for a place to go, I can do that. Look how good I am. Look how wonderful I am. I wish everybody could see how much I give to my, my school board. I'm a part of the committee. I wish everybody could see how much I do for my church, how much I do to go serve in Belize, how much I go to serve in all these places. I'm such a good person. And this is our natural tendency, and this was the tendency of the Israelites. And so they said, God. God wanted to come down and meet them, and he was so powerful and mighty, it was so wonderful, the presence of God was amazing, that they were so freaked out by it. said, no, don't kill us. It says, Moses, would you go and just talk to God for us and just tell him whatever he says to do, we'll do it. This is what they wanted. Whatever God wants is what we'll do. And so actually what happens is God creates the law. He says, if you want to know what it takes to do all the things that require to be like me, I'll just write down some things. Not that cutting the hair on your temples is bad. Not that shellfish are bad. Actually, they're quite delightful. Right? And women, truth be told, we don't want you to camp outside the town. Because then what are the kids going to do? Running around the house when we're just like, ah! We need you there. Meat with blood in it, it's actually very delicious. What's the reasoning? The reason God was like, these are just natural things that mean absolutely nothing, but I'm just going to show you how hard it is to get to this place that I'm at. You can't get here on your own. It's impossible. It's so impossible. And if you just begin to read Leviticus and all of the things like, this is absolutely impossible. Who can do this? And God's like, exactly. Exactly. And so here's what it says in verse 20. It says, therefore... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. In other words, even if you keep a lot, no one will be declared righteous. You can't. And then he says this. Rather, the law, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Remember over here? I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. It's a nagging feeling. But somehow we feel like we're in the middle. Like, I'm, I'm not that bad, but I'm, you know, I'm not Jesus. I'm not, you know, I'm not who I used to be, but, you know, I'm not like, you know, angelic or anything. I got a little bit of both. I'm working towards something. And what God is saying is like, you can't work towards it. You can't get there. I just want you to see that you're, 
you're worthless, that you're used, that even though I designed you to be a Bentley, you've gone on sale again and again and again and again. You've been used again and again and again. And this law hopefully puts you to the place where you go, you know what? I'm done. I can't stand before God. And as long as you're over here, you'll never get to the place of needing God to get you to the new status. Remember when I said this, that God could pay pennies for you? He could pay pennies for you. But he demonstrates how valuable you are by what he is willing to pay, just like those pants. Am I willing to pay? I mean, these pants feel so good. I would pay $200 for them next time. They got me hooked. They got me hooked. I've seen the value. So even though Jesus, even though God could just pay pennies for your life, he doesn't because he's seen your value. Yeah, you're used and you're worthless and maybe they don't recognize you like those pair of, of, of Back to the Future Nikes covered in dirt. But God sees it. And this is what he says just a couple chapters after he tries to convince you that you're so sinful, you're so worthless. He says this, Caitlin, this Romans 6. You see, at just the right time, we were still powerless. We were worthless. We were invaluable. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God was willing to pay a price that reflects your worth. How much are you worth? His son. I'll pay it all. I'll give it all. But oftentimes people don't ever receive a gift of that kind of worth because they don't really see that they're in need of that kind of saving. So what Paul is trying to get across to a, pe- a group of believers that are persecuted on the right, on the left, everywhere, is that I know you're doing great things. I see all your good works. Let's just go back to this. God is so incredibly good to you. And you are worth so much to him that he would pay a high price. And you are such a great investment that he is willing to stick with you every step of the way, every hardship, every trial, everything you're going through. He hasn't left you. He paid a high price. You don't pay a high price and throw it in the gutter. You look after it. You cherish it. It's like the Mona Lisa. Don't even take pictures of this. It's that valuable. You're that valuable. You're worth it to God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? The simple gospel is this. That God designed you before the foundation of the world. You were actually on a perfect level, custom made by him. His fingerprints are all over your DNA. He has designed you from beginning to end. Somewhere along the way, we got broken and, and became used and used and used and used. And, and probably you're here today and you're going, man, I wish I wasn't so used. Every morning you get up and your knees don't work right and your, your back hurts. You're like, man, I just feel used. There's stuff in your soul that's broken and you're like, I just feel so used. How could God want anything with me? And so you've been working your way. You've been moving forward going, you know what? Maybe I could do a little better and God will want me. I can, I can improve my worth. And he says, no, I'm sorry. Actually, you don't have any worth apart from what I'm willing to pay you for you because I see how valuable you are. Anything you're trying to do to create worth won't be enough. You just have to receive how good God is. That's the gospel. He paid a high price for you. You're worth it. I don't think he goes one day and goes, you know what? I paid too much. 
because you're worth it. I'd do it all again. You're worth it. I love you so much. You're worth it. Today, maybe if you have never received this gospel, this truth, that God would die, send his son to save sinners, to die to save sinners, just like you, just like me. He finds you where you are, in the worst of circumstances, in the worst condition, but he knows what you're worth. So he pays the price. If you're here today, would you say, Brandon, I need to know Jesus like that. I need a greater level of understanding. I've been far from God. I've been living in worthlessness, but I want to live in the newness of life. Would you raise your hand with me real quick? Thank you. Awesome. There's a prayer we pray here. It's simple. We're all going to pray it together. Just repeat after me. Jesus, I believe in you. Forgive me of my sin. I want to follow after you. We believe that's the beginning of a journey with Jesus that will last a lifetime. You're here today and you say, Brandon, you're making some sense to me. I've been trying to do some stuff in my own power, but I need to go back to the simple gospel that God is the one who does it in my life. God is the one who moves in my life. That I can move with power. The supernatural power of God just by understanding that I wish I could, but I can't. Say, Brandon, pray for me. This truth would become greater in my life. Just raise your hand where you are. I want to pray for you today. Awesome. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the people in this room that have come today to meet with you, that you are revealing yourself, your nature in greater ways to them. I believe that supernatural healing, restoration, supernatural power, supernatural development is happening in their life. That you would do more through this bit of wisdom than all the years of their salvation up to this point. That today would be a new day. They would walk complete newness because they understand that although I was worthless to some, I'm worth it to Jesus. God, we thank you for all you're doing in our lives. Continue to do supernatural things in us, through us, around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Give God a big praise today.